The title of this message is, there are, there are No Superstars in the Church. I've mentioned that a number of times, but I actually get to preach on it this morning. When I was in grade school, a long time ago, when there were only black and white televisions and rotary dial phones, I was never at the top of my class in anything. It's maybe misbehavior. I wasn't the best student, I wasn't the best athlete on our basketball team, so when it came time for awards to be passed out at the end of the year in the student assembly, I certainly didn't think I was going to get any, at least not in math or English or science, but to my surprise, they called me up on stage And they pinned this award on me. Well, I looked down at that ribbon. And I saw the people clapping. And this big, proud look came on my face. (laughs) And someone came up and took the ribbon off me. And that's like you have heard. The funny thing about humility is when you think you got it, you lost it. So in his book, Growing Downward, that's an interesting title for a book, right? Growing Downward, The Path to Christ-Exalting Humility. Author Nick Thompson recognizes that pride is our worst enemy. He says, if pride is our chief foe, then humility is our chief friend, even though its company may be painful. But spiritual growth is a descent. We must grow downward. And he defines humility as this. The downward disposition of a Godward self-perception. The downward disposition of a Godward self-perception. So Andrew Murray defined humility as the place of entire dependence upon God. And I like that. And actually the scripture teaches that because Jesus said in John 15, 4, abide in me. Now that's not a a coming and a going, right? Abiding is not, well, I'll draw close to Christ when I need him. It's, It's a permanent place. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. No more can you except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same, and we could translate, that one will bring forth not just fruit, but much fruit. And then he adds these words, for without me, You can do nothing. Nothing. Now, let me clarify that. Without Jesus, you can accomplish many things. Many people do in this world. They accomplish great things without Jesus. But you cannot bear spiritual fruit in your life to the glory of God that will remain. Verse 16. And that's what we want, our fruit to remain. 
Now, one of the problems that the Christian church has always faced is the rise of superstar personalities. We have exalted men to the point that their names and ministries have overshadowed the one and the only person who must always have the preeminence, and that's Jesus. Being in a high visibility position in a ministry, being a pastor in a visible position in a church, is a dangerous calling. People can think you have it all together. They can think that you are the one with all the answers. They can pat you on the back for a number of different things. And it gets easier and easier to start believing that you are really important. Or maybe even necessary to God's working in this world. Nothing could be further from the truth. God does not need any one of us. But the amazing thing is he desires to use us as we look to him, humbly seeking his all-sufficient grace. Now, I do not wish to minimize how God has used certain men and women in big ways in the history of his church. But that is owing to God's grace, not not their own abilities or personalities. Paul recognized the grace of God in his life from the very moment when he was saved on the Damascus Road. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It talks about the Lord, resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul says, last of all, he appeared to me. And then he says in verse 9, I am the least of the apostles. I'm not deserving to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Now I want you to notice the word grace in these verses. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, even in his labors, but the grace of God which was with me. Three times Paul mentions the grace of God in those two verses. And Paul used the Greek word for grace, which is charis in its equivalent forms, many times in his epistles. Some say 120, some say 140. I never counted them. But it's frequent because Paul owed everything to God's grace. His calling to salvation was by the grace of God. Look in 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'm sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me, for he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Who put Paul into the ministry? God. Who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. He wasted in his own testimony the church of God. He put Christians to death. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And look in verse 14. And the grace of our Lord 
was exceeding abundant. That's referring to his life with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. So the, the, the least of the apostles, by his own estimation, never got over the wonder of the grace of God that was bestowed upon him from the day that he was, he was saved. And he considered himself completely unworthy of that grace. Look at verse 15 in 1 Timothy 1. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance or belief that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Here's a very knowledgeable, gifted man. But he says, I am chief. Protos. I am the first. I am the principal. I am the best. I am the foremost. Sinners of sinners. That's how he saw himself. You know, Luke chapter 15 and verse 21 is the story of the prodigal son, and you know it, so I won't take the time to go through, but he, but he repents and he returns to his father. And he says, Father, in Luke 15, 21, I have sinned against heaven. Sin is always first in, pri- in terms of priority against God. I have sinned against heaven, and in thy sight, that means against his father, and am no more worthy to be called your son, but the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe. That word best there is the same word that Paul referred to himself as the chief of sinners. Bring forth the best robe and put it upon him and put a ring in his hand and shoes on his feet. And what I take away from this is that when we robe ourselves in humility, God robes us in honor. When we When we humble ourselves, God lifts us up. So Paul's calling to salvation was by the grace of God. Paul's calling to apostleship was was all of grace. We, We saw that already in verse 12. It was that God who put him into the ministry. And in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, it speaks about Jesus. And it says that he was declared or revealed to be, demonstrated, proven to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And then in Romans 1.5, Paul says this, by whom we have received grace and apostleship. He's talking about his office. For obedience to, to the faith among the nations for his name. So his salvation was all of grace. His calling to ministry as an apostle, was all of grace. And then the the noun there, apostolin, which is translated apostleship, it it modifies and intensifies the meaning of the noun charis, grace. So Paul is saying is, grace grace is synonymous with my my apostleship. My, My apostleship is because of God's grace. I do what I do because of the grace of God. And thirdly, Paul's ministry was a ministry of the gospel of grace. Acts 20, verse 24. I mean, you couldn't shake this man because he was utterly dependent upon God. 
Whatever state he was in, he was content because he realized all things came from God. And he says, none of these things move me. None of the threats against his life moved him. He says, neither can I my life dear unto myself. What do you do with a man like that who has no fear of man but utter, de- utter, utter dependence upon God? So he says, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus. And here's the ministry. To testify the gospel of the grace of God. Brothers and sisters, we are ambassadors of Christ. We are called to do the work of an evangelist. That's your ministry too. To testify to other people of the gospel of the grace of God. I do not know, when I look out in this world and there are so many voices out there, on, on media and every, every, every social media platform, television, radio, everything. And they're extremely vocal and protesting and marching and articulating their, their views, what's important to them. But how many Christians are so silent to even tell one person about the grace of God in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Romans chapter 15, verse 15. I have written the more boldly unto you in some part as putting you in mind because of the grace that is given to me of God. That I should be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God. His ministry was was about the gospel of God, the grace of God. And he says, so that the offering up of the Gentiles, those whom would come to faith through his preaching of the gospel, would be acceptable and sanctified and set apart for the glory of God by the Holy Spirit of God. So his salvation was all of grace. His apostleship, his ministry was all of grace. And the gospel he preached was the gospel of the grace of God. And fruit that remains to the glory of God was the Apostle Paul's aim. Fruit that would remain to the glory of God. And in order to accomplish that, he had to to follow Christ. And in following Christ, he modeled the humility of Jesus Christ. And that's why he could say in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 11.1, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Boy, we live in a world of followers, don't we? Everywhere you look, people are following other people. Well, who are we to follow? Paul said, follow me. If you're going to follow a man, only follow the man who's following Jesus. Follow me as I follow Christ, is what Paul says. Now, in light of the gospel of God's grace, all of us as believers, we have to have a proper opinion of ourselves. So so look at Romans 12. We're in the third verse. We saw in verse 1 that we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. That means daily, every moment, holy, 
which means separated to God, acceptable to Him. And that's our reasonable act of worship, verse 1. And then we looked at verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. The world is always wanting to conform you to its standards. But be ye transformed, and this is the only way you will not be conformed to the world, is to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, saturating your mind with the Word of God and living it out so that you could prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Listen, if you just saturate your mind with the Word of God, you just constantly look to the Lord, you offer yourself up to Him as a living sacrifice, you don't have to go around wondering what God's will is in in your life. God will take care of that. God will take care of that. Amazing statement. Verse 3 now. For I say through the grace given unto me, he mentions it again, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. So here's the command. Stop thinking you are somebody special. Because you're not. That's the sin of pride. It's the sin of arrogance, really. So here's, here's the other prohibition there. Think soberly about yourself. Stop thinking otherwise. Start thinking soberly about yourself. Proverbs has so much to say about pride. Proverbs 11.2 says, When pride cometh, then cometh shame. But with the lowly, there is wisdom. That's humility. In Proverbs 16.18, it says, and you know this one, Pride goeth before destruction. And you know, I looked that word up, and it means shattering. It means crashing down. How many, how many examples have we seen of people who were just really elevated, whose lives came crashing down. And they were publicly shamed and humiliated. Pride goes before destruction, a crashing, and a haughty spirit before a fall. So, I put this down. Thirdly, we are to think soberly of ourselves. What does that mean? It really means to be of a sound mind... And judgment. It's telling us that we need to have a proper estimate of ourselves. This is not easy to do. And here's the interesting thing. When you don't, when you don't, it means that you are out of your right mind. When the, when the demoniac was healed by Jesus... And remember chains, he'd break the chains, he'd hide in the caves, he'd yell and scream. And, he came, and the Bible says that the people were amazed. He came into his own mind. Same word. In other words, he came back to sanity. So A.T. Robertson, the Greek, the Greek scholar, says, self-conceit in Romans 12 is here treated as a species of insanity. Your mind is so inflated with yourself, you can't think correctly. 
You're out of your mind. You have to come back to sound judgment. And by the way, sin is insanity, right? And the chief of sins is pride. So have a right estimation of yourself. I read that 90% of the teachers surveyed believed that they were better than average. Now, there's something wrong with that math. When 90% of people surveyed believe they're better than average... Look in 1 Corinthians 4.7. You could mark this down. If you're ever beginning to feel really good about yourself, verse 7, who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? I mean, that puts, puts you into the place of making a proper estimation of yourself. If you have some talent, some gift, some ability, don't boast about it. God give it to you. You have that ability. You received it. You didn't, you didn't work for it, per se. You had that, that natural ability to begin with. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy, chapter 3. It's probably not 2 Timothy, chapter 3. Yeah, verse 1. Know this. And anytime you see those words, Paul really wants you to know this. That in the last times, in the last days, perilous times will come. Now that began back then, right before the Romans' persecutions. But it increased over time, and it's going to get worse prior to the return of the Lord. We live in perilous times. But look what he says in verse 2. Men will be lovers of their own selves. They're going to be in love with themselves. Ephesians 5.29 For no man ever hates his own flesh. That's what the Bible says. We've been sold this this bill of goods on low self-esteem and everything. Everything is all out of whack. And people say, oh, I hate myself. I don't like the way I look. I don't like this, that, the other thing about myself. No, it's because you actually love yourself. that That you bring up many of those things. No man, the Bible says, ever hates his own flesh. But he nourishes and cherishes it. He looks out for number one. Just as the Lord does the church. The Lord looks out for the church. Just as God's word says, we, we take care of ourselves. We look for our, out for ourselves number one. In Luke chapter 10, look at the scripture. Verse 27. 
Luke 10. It says in verse 25, a certain lawyer, watch out for those lawyers, right? Stood up and tested him saying, teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? What, what, what is your reading of it? So he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. I've actually read books by Christian psychologists who have made the statement that you really can't love other people or God until you love yourself first. And I've seen them cite this verse. They turn two commands into, into three commands. Love God, right? With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and, and then they add this other one. And love your neighbor that's two. And then the third one, they say, is yourself. There's only two commands here. The assumption is you are already loving yourself. Because, as we read in Ephesians 5.20, man, no man ever hates himself. But he nourishes and cherishes and loves himself. So just to clear that up. Now, let me say this. False humility... It's probably worse than having no humility, right? Because it's nothing but hypocrisy. And I think it can be used as an excuse to do nothing for the Lord. Nothing. You, know? you, don't, you, you, you just pass stuff off because oh, I don't have that gift, I don't have that talent, or whatever it is, and I, I'm not like so-and-so. Who can, all these things come real easy to them. You may not have a certain spiritual gift or a natural ability to do things in the church. You might not be able to play the, the piano like some of the musicians or sing like some people or teach like some people. But listen, you can do something. You can do what God has promised to equip you to do by His grace in the church and outside of the church, for his glory. And, and the end of verse 3 demonstrates this, Romans twelve three. God has given to every man a measure of faith. Every man. That means nobody's excluded, right? Just as nobody's excluded from spiritual gifts. So that's this, the, the measure of faith, this is sort of a... There's been a lot of different commentaries on that. Uh, I think it means the faith to discern the limitations of your spiritual gift. What has God has given to you? It can't be saving faith, right? Because that doesn't come in portions, right? You're saved or you're not saved. So context, context, context. The context is spiritual gifts and service to the body. So I put this down there with a little question mark after. Measure of faith, the amount of faith required to use their gifts effectively in the church. And, and, and it does. Because you may, you, know, you may have a spiritual gift that God has given to you, but that gift is not developed completely. But how are you going to develop it? The same way you develop a muscle, right? Put it into practice, right? So you need to start exercising in the capacity where you believe you have been gifted to serve the Lord 
in the body of Christ and let God take care of everything else. You'll, you're, you'll, you'll, you will see that God will use you right where you are. You don't have to go to Bible college. You don't have to you know, do everything excellently right off the bat. A lot of people say, oh, I can't do that. You know, I can't do it as good as so-and-so, so I'm not going to do anything at all. No, God has given you a measure of faith. And you go on in Romans, he likens the church to a body, and we're all very familiar with this. And I think it helps to explain verse 3, which we just read. Romans 12, 4. For as we have many members in one body, that's the physical body, and all members do not have the same office or function, so we being many, all of us here this morning, are one body in Christ. So, so it's, there's... There's, there isn't you know, multiple bodies here doing what they want to do. We're, we're all one, and everyone members of one another. We, we have a, a vital connection to one another. That's why the Bible says when one suffers, we all what? Suffer. When one rejoices, we all what? We all rejoice. But notice verse 6. Having then gifts. These are spiritual gifts differing according to what? The grace that has been given to us. And that comes from God. Now let me say this. Christians in the church are equal. We're all equal in our position before Christ. There is neither male nor female, nor rich, nor poor, slaves, nor free. But we are different in God, in how God has gifted us. We don't all have the same gifts. And because it's God who's gifted it for His glory in His church... It means there's no reason, no ground for boasting by anybody because it all comes from him. What do you have that you have not received? We read that, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. And it's, act, it's actually the same with the male and female distinctions in the church and in the home. Men aren't superior. They don't have bragging rights. It's just a matter of God's established order and the functions of how men and women will work together in the home and in the church, complementing each other. You know, you, you may not have certain things that in your position as uh, the head of the home, if you're a man in a Christian home, but, but your wife does have things that you need, you need from her. She's your helpmate. So God has established the order and functions of men and women in certain spheres. And God has established his church. And he's gifted people in different ways to work together for the glory of God. Now, 1 Corinthians 12, 4. Look at this verse. Put it up here for you. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit, right? It's the manifestation of the spirit through the gifts. So there's only one Holy Spirit, but there's many, many different manifestations of it. It's the same way with the fruits of the Spirit. You know, it manifests itself in love, joy, and peace, but it's actually singular. It's actually the fruit of the Holy Spirit that manifests itself in these different ways, Galatians 5. But it's the same here with spiritual gifts. There are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. He's the one who is over it all. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. God is behind it all. And then he says in verse 7, what we already saw, but to each one, which means no believer is excluded, everybody's been given a measure of faith, 
a spiritual gift. To each one, no believer is excluded, is given the manifestation of the Spirit. That's how the Spirit works in you through the gift that God has given to you. But this phrase, this phrase, for the common good. For the common good. So we should all be looking out for what is best for the whole church. That's the common good that God has in mind. Not for ourselves as individuals within the church. And and Paul's point is that is exactly what the Holy Spirit does in the distribution of spiritual gifts. It's not to magnify this person or that person. It's not to make this person feel better than everybody else. It's for the common good. It's for the common good. And that simply means the spiritual benefit or the profit of the whole. The profit of the whole. The church could not function if everybody had the same spiritual gift. No work would get done, really. Unless you had people who had the gift of service, right? So your body can't function without every member of your body working together to do what it is that your body needs to do. I mean, the the illustration is so clear here. So this requires not only one, not, not, not only that everybody exercise the spiritual gift that God has given to them, and don't try to go out and force yourself, force a gift upon yourself. You can't do that. But it also requires, if it's for the common good, it requires a concerted effort at unity in the church in the exercise of the spiritual gifts that God has given to everybody. Boy, do we need unity, right? In his appeal to a deeply divided America, how many here today would say that we are a deeply divided America? I mean, never have I ever seen it like this. Never. And in his appeal to a deeply divided America at the time of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln, who was a wise man, said, if we are to survive and thrive as a nation, we must hold our divisions and contradictions and differences with compassion lest we lose our democracy. He recognized that when forces are dividing a country, if there is not a compassionate voice who is going to to try to be a peacemaker and a unifier without compromising the, 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 the truths, he says the nation will not stand because a house divided against itself cannot stand. And a church divided against itself cannot stand. So we, in this matter, even though we don't think alike on, all, on everything, we have to have the same mindset within the church. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about what is best for all of us. For the common good as one body. Oh, I'll tell you, as I said, America's a divided nation. And brothers and sisters, we cannot let anything divide the church because it will fall. 
it will fall. It can't survive. There is so much scripture to this effect. Listen, do not be another angry voice out there. Don't put your MAGA hat on and shout loudly. Whatever it is, you know, do compassionately. Whatever needs to be said or whatever needs to be done. Philippians, Paul said, chapter 2, if there be any consolation in Christ. Now think of these words. Consolation in Christ. If any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels of mercies, fulfill you my joy that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind. Let everyone esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man on the things of others. That is so contrary to fallen human nature who looks out for number one first. Why does he look out for number one first? Because no man ever hated himself, but loves himself and cherishes and nourishes himself. That's, that's evident, really. But I just want to look at these words. He says to, to be like-minded. You know what that means? It means working together in spite of our differences. Having the same love. What kind of love is that? Christ-like love. Of one accord. That means seeing yourself as bound together in one body and you don't want to be the one who's going to tear that body apart. Of one mind. That's, I mean, it doesn't mean we all think alike politically or any, whatever else it is. Diets, whatever else it is. We don't. We're different. But it means we have common beliefs and goals based on God's truth that are, that are important for church life. Free of strife and pride, he says. In lowliness of mind. What's lowliness of mind? Humility. Esteeming others above yourself. What does that mean? Valuing others more than yourself. Looking out for others and not yourself. And that includes doing things for others. And then Paul goes here in First Timothy, or Philippians chapter 2. He gives us the ultimate example in verse 5. Let this mind, this way of thought, be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And what does it go on to say? Did he exalt himself? No, he was already exalted but he didn't consider the glory of heaven and all that he had as a prize to be held on to. But he divested himself of that glory and he came to man, to this earth, and he humbled himself and he became a man and he ultimately went to the cross and died and he left us the perfect example of everything that you just read there in Philippians chapter 2. Lowliness of mind, love, thinking of others better than yourself, looking out for them better than yourself. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus saith the high and the lofty one that inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, 
with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. I say amen to that. Boy, that's a powerful verse to memorize. We need a revival of contrite hearts in our homes, in our churches, in our workplaces, and in our nation. You know what contrite means? Daka, the Hebrew word. Listen to this. You know what it means? It doesn't mean you think highly of yourself. The word means reduced to dust. Reduced to dust. Small particles. We're no big deal. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to them that are of a broken heart, the idea of repentance, and he saves such as be of a contrite spirit. Again, the International Bible Encyclopedia defines this. A contrite heart is one in which the natural pride and self-sufficiency have been completely humbled by the consciousness of guilt or inadequacy. Listen, we're all inadequate, right? None of us have it completely together. You may have your strong points, but I guarantee you, you have some weak ones too. And so do I. And that's why we're in this together. And that's why God formed a church, one body with many different parts, many different people. And gifted them as he decided to gift them so that they can work together for the common good. And the common good ultimately is that Jesus would be lifted up and glorified in his church. Psalm 51.16, God says he doesn't desire a sacrifice or else I would give it. He doesn't delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou will not despise. (laughs) The path upward is downward, isn't it? A broken and a contrite heart. And the word that's often overlooked in that verse, in that David psalm of repentance, Psalm 51, is the word broken. Broken. A broken heart. You know what that means? It means crushed. Reduced to submission. Like contrite, reduced to dust. It means that you're you're not building yourself up, thinking highly of yourself. You're recognizing your own insignificance and your complete dependence upon God for your every single breath. I remember one time I, you know, had something not good happen to me in my life and I didn't know that I would be able to make it, to be honest with you. And, and all I prayed was, God, God, if, if I am to get down, if I am to keep on living, you're going to have to help me because I can't do it. I can't do it. Isaiah 66, verse 2. For all those things hath my hand made, right? Talked about that in Sunday school today. And all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look. This is the man, this is the woman 
that God is looking for. Even to him that is poor. That doesn't mean materially poor. It means lowly. To him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembles at my word. And we've lost that, right? We've lost the sense of the awe of God. We don't tremble anymore at his word. But God is looking for someone who is lowly and of a contrite spirit. We'll go back to verse 3, Romans 12. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, means of a sound judgment, have a proper estimate of yourself. Have a proper estimate of yourself. Think rightly about yourself. The church is no place for superstars. But we have promoted this in many different ways. We have exalted the names of men who are just men at best and nothing more than that. We have given them the headlines in the church at our, at our Bible and pastors' conferences they're the chief speakers. It's almost become like a private club of Christian celebrities, and ordinary Christians or ordinary pastors are excluded from that elite club, from that membership. And if you go to some of these Bible conferences, they have the headline speakers, the big names, and, and a lot of the, the ordinary guys that do the plowing in the church day in and day out in a small little field somewhere, they... they get a lesser role or no role at all because they don't have name recognition. They don't publish the best-selling books. And if you ever knew how best-selling books became best-selling books among Christian authors, you would be shocked. You would be shocked. They're not on TV. They're not on radio. They don't have a mega church with a mega microphone a big ministry. Now, I have to tell you this. I honestly am not speaking out of jealousy. I would never want that because it's far too easy to fall once men begin to lift you up. Egos, egos, big egos are destroying pastors and men in ministry in general. I will spare you the names, but I could give you a long list of names who re of people who really began to think that they were somebody special, and they fell from grace. Many of them have fallen from grace into disgrace, and they should have seen it coming, and somebody near them should have seen it coming. It can happen to anyone, right? Because pride, as we said, goes before a fall. So you know what that means? It means we make it harder for Christians when we elevate them. It doesn't mean that you don't have to appreciate them. You can appreciate them. You can express your appreciate them. But there's a big difference between expressing appreciation or gratitude and exalting somebody. 
and, and, and lifting them up. We need to put an end to Christian celebrities. Let Hollywood have their celebrities. Let the sports world have their superstars. There are no superstars in the church because it's all of God's grace. What do you have that you have not received? Talent and success create a special opportunity for serious sin. Never forget that. Talent and success create a special opportunity for serious sin. 1 Corinthians 10.12 says, Wherefore let him who thinks he stands take heed, what? Lest he fall. Oh, no, I, I, I would never, I know my own place. I, I would never fall for that or fall into that. But God says, if you think you won't fall, you're really close to falling. You think you can't, you surely can. 1 Corinthians 3, 4. When one says, I am of Paul, and I am of, an, of Paulus, are you not mere men? What he's saying, aren't you speaking like men? Who is Apollos? Who is Paul? You know what the next word is? Servants. Now, there's nothing glamorous about being a servant, certainly not in that day. Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted Apollos water, they did their parts. God was causing the growth. It wasn't Paul's labors. It wasn't Apollos' eloquence. It was God who was bringing about the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters, and I love these words, is anything. Now if you're not anything, you're nothing. but God who causes the growth. Now, he who plants and he who labors are what? Oh, they're not trying to get ahead one of the other, right? He says, are one. Are one. You come back to the analogy of the Bible again, or the body again. You need every member of your body to be able to function completely. He who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Look, you can have a false estimation of yourself and think you should get whatever it is as a reward. It doesn't matter. God, God is the only one who can make the estimate of what you and I have done. He is the only one who can do it. So he's the only one who can give us the proper reward, right? And God will be the judge of that, and God alone. Jeremiah 9.23. You know, I had this verse on my desk for a long time. The verses that I'm going to put up here for you. I'll tell you a little story about it. Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might, 
Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glories in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, saith the Lord. So somebody called me one time, and I had that verse right taped to the bottom of my my monitor, my computer monitor. And they called me and they said, what are you doing? I says, oh, I was just thinking, thinking about this verse and I read them this verse. Now you would have thought they would have been blessed, right? They were angry at me. They were angry. Are, are you saying that I have a problem with pride? I didn't even bring it up. <laughs> that is the truth. All I did was read a Bible verse. I didn't even think. But to be reality, this person had a big problem with pride. Big problem with pride. Let him that glory, glory in this. Don't glory in your wisdom. Don't glory in your might and in your strength or your riches. Glory in the fact that you know me. If you're going to boast, boast in the fact that you know God has your Savior, and this is the great work that he has done in your life. And, and that you have come to understand and know him, not because of your brilliance, because, because of the word of God and the power of the Spirit revealed him to you. And that's what God is wanting. That's what he's looking for. He's looking for that kind of a person. It all comes down to what? Humility. Now listen, I'm just going to close in saying, pride is a very subtle sin. You can see it in somebody else easier than you can see it in yourself. Now, you know that to be true, right? It's an absolute fact. It's so easy to say, well, boy, did you see so-and-so? But you don't see the man or the woman in the mirror. And we need to see ourselves as God sees us. God wants to use us. God can do great things for us or through us for his glory, but it's only because of him. It's only, if we achieve anything, if we attain anything, if we do anything for the Lord, it's because of his grace working in our life. If you're a good mom, it's because of God's grace working in your life, showing you in reality that you're not such a good mom without him, that you're utterly dependent upon him. If you're a good dad, same thing. If you do a good job, in school, or on your job, if you do a good job, it's because God's given you the ability to be able to do that. Remember Sam Rotman playing? You know, he didn't take credit for that. He said, God gave me the mind to, what? to learn the, the music. God gave me the hands to be able to play the music. God gave me the discipline to be able to sit and practice the music because it just doesn't come like that, right? We have to work, Right? But while we're working, in reality, it's God working in us. So that's all I have to say this morning. No superstars in the church.